0: The sobering reality I think we have to face is that we now live
1: in an empire
0: of lies.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, visit the Contributes tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Quirks and Quarks from the CBC, This Is Hell Radio, a forum with the former Supreme Court Justice David Souter speaking via PBS NewsHour, Frontline, Ideas from the CBC, and a Progressive Faith sermon from Reverend Roger Ray.
2: Carl Sagan is a revered scientist and former host of the show Cosmos. In 1995, he published a book called The Demon-Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark. About a year after the book was released, Sagan died. This week, a few lines from that book went viral. They seemed to perfectly capture the world we are living in. We asked Carl Sagan's son, Nick Sagan, to read that passage for us. And while Sagan's vision of the future wasn't exactly cheerful... Nick holds on to his father's optimism and urges us all to do the same. Science is more than a body of knowledge. It is a way of thinking. I have a foreboding of an America in my children's or grandchildren's time, when the United States is a service and information economy, when nearly all the key manufacturing industries have slipped away to other countries, when awesome technological powers are in the hands of a very few, and no one representing the public interest can even grasp the issues. When the people have lost the ability to set their own agendas or knowledgeably question those in authority, when, clutching our crystals and nervously consulting our horoscopes, our critical faculties in decline, unable to distinguish between what feels good and what's true, we slide, almost without noticing, back into superstition and darkness. My father was a, uh, you know, not only a, a planetary scientist and a great popularizer of science, but he uh he thought very deeply about the world. He was a scholar, he studied history, he taught a class in critical thinking, and he was very, very aware of uh the directions we might go. He was concerned about this danger that uh you know we make all this great progress, but there's a real chance that we could fall apart. There are too many forces aligned against us. I think what we're seeing right now is uh a kind of coming true of what he said. There's a uh, a danger increasingly where uh, we live in a post fact society it seems where my ignorance is as good as your facts, where there's there's no one who can really uh, argue you know what's true anymore because uh, science is being devalued, and uh, there are scientists who are uh, being uh, told that they have to uh, submit their work to political advisors as opposed to just following what's true. The, the core of science, and something my father dearly loved, is the scientific method, and it's founded in this element of humility. The idea is that you pursue the truth wherever it goes. You you, you do evidence, and you look, and you see if it's repeatable. And, uh, you know, very often it happens, he, he said, that scientists will say, you know what, my, my claim was mistaken. I thought I was right, but I'm not. Let's keep working to find the truth. And he says how rarely, by comparison, that happens with political or religious leaders. Science is, a, is a, a wonderful way of getting at what's real. We used to talk many times, often looking up at the stars, about the future of you know, where we're going, where we, we've come from, and, and what's likely to happen. And he was very clear-sighted about the challenges that face us. And we would talk, and I, he would, I would sometimes play the pessimist in these conversations, and he the optimist. And he would look and say, like, for all the challenges that face us, and he was very clear-eyed about them. He wouldn't soft-sell them. He said even so, he would still bet on us. He would bet on humanity to find a way to make it through. And now he's gone, and it's up to us. We're in a, a dangerous time. There are a lot of uh, people who feel like there are, there are forces of superstition and darkness that are rising, and it's up to us to, uh, to stand up and hold on to what's true.
3: You have said how our deepest convictions are arbitrary. You use the example of an Israeli soldier and a Palestinian fighting each other. You ask if they had been raised in the other society, would they still not be fighting for their cause? If our deepest convictions are arbitrary, if we are not responsible for our own decisions, if we make choices with a brain we didn't choose, How precarious is our society? Will a realization of our lack of freedom, our lack of control, the realization that all our stories we tell ourselves that at least give the impression of some control over our lives, will questioning that, will the realization that those things are not true lead to ugliness, lead to chaos?
4: I think there's a sense in which it's incredibly empowering to understand the limits on your own freedom when you want when you have knowledge you can transcend those limits if you deny the limits on your freedom if you, if we pretend that we are freer than we are politically and um, as individuals then all we do is we become complacent and we rob ourselves of the tools that could allow us to expand our freedom to improve to create a better society um will this happen or not there's no way to predict Um, But I would say that having optimism about the possibility of social change and creating a fairer society in which people have more uh, critical thinking faculties and and are exposed to more accurate pictures of the world, representations, um, I think having that optimism gives us the energy to act. If we are cynical from the start about the possibility of change, that simply guarantees that we're going to fail. Um, so for me, optimism is a political strategy in that sense. And, you know, I, I see great potential in human beings, even even many people I disagree with, fundamentally, politically. Um, I see that at heart, they have good instincts. They do want a better world. There is, a, there is commonality there. But, I, you know, it's hard, actually, to develop a reasonably accurate picture of the world and the way politics works in a society in which there are so many forces trying to mislead and deceive, um, so it's really a battle that we can we, we we fight collectively and as individuals to educate ourselves and each other, and and to p- pursue this ideal of truth. Um, but truth has always been threatening to power systems and elites. It always will be. Um, we're we're not trained to think critically. We're trained, for example, to unquestioningly. Um, develop pat- patriotism in, in whatever country we happen to be born into. Um, a kind of unquestioned loyalty, without which is obviously a, a very dangerous thing to cultivate, but it's, it's something which in most countries that you see, and it goes absolutely counter to the principles of critical thought and the pursuit of truth, which would demand that we actually interrogate our country, interrogate our government, and... Instead of accepting claims that somehow we are superior or benign, we always look for evidence. And when we look for evidence, it's often an ugly picture that we find. And so our loyalty needs to be not for a nation or any particular label or even a religion. It needs to be for these abstract but fundamentally important ideals of truth and and, and justice and fairness.
3: You've said that when we question our identities, we have to question the information we receive. But we also need to ask what's been left out. Then you point out how here in the States, school children have to give the Pledge of Allegiance each day, a pledge that ties liberty and justice to the U.S. flag. Yet what the students are not taught is that between 1945 and 2005, the U.S. attempted to overthrow 50 governments around the world, many of them democracies. In the same period, Britain is complicit in the deaths of nearly 10 million people in the world, which as you point out, is not something school children learn in the UK either. So, to what degree are wars, both hot and cold, the result of brainwashed allegiance that is ignorant of not only your own country's true past, but is also confused by another country's uh, citizens' loyalty and patriotism, which, when examined, is also faulty?
4: I'm not, I, I think we can um, draw a very clear kind of causal relationship between the, the beliefs which are kind of imposed or encouraged in society and the capacity of states to act violently abroad. Um, it would be very, very hard, and it is very hard, when the majority of the population see through the um, completely immoral motivations of governments um, who are simply in a kind of global game of power to control resources, to control, to undermine democracy if it suits their purposes, and to sell arms to the most tyrannical regimes. I mean, Britain is, I think, that that the sells um, more arms than any, any other country apart from the States. Um, and we, I think, have sold almost eight billion worth of, of arms to um, regimes on our own human rights blacklist. Um, so, I mean, there's just no morality in our foreign policy whatsoever. But if the population actually had clear access to these facts and these histories and see that preceding almost every war, there is a propaganda uh, attempt to deceive the, the mass population. And, and this goes back all the way to, I mean, we can look at Woodrow Wilson and um, World War One, uh, where we have kind of the creation of the largest, I think it was the, the Creel Commission it was called, the largest propaganda machine that had ever existed in history to change the uh, severe anti-war sentiment that existed. Um, and actually turn the nation into one which was, uh, you know, very much in favour of war. And, and this propaganda machine did that. It had a massive effect on public opinion. And from then on, we've seen similar tactics in which, you know, advertisers, artists, um, psychologists, scientists, uh, and the mass media in general are called upon to use their talents and their understanding to, in a sense, just manipulate and deceive and frame things in such a way that citizens of a nation are like yeah this is this seems the right thing to do and and of course, once you're at war, you're called unpatriotic if you question it, um and there are all kinds of social penalties for actually being able to think critically and point out what's immoral. But the strange thing is you know any any citizen who has that sense of kind of unquestioned loyalty had they been um born in another country and under a different government, their loyalty would lie you know elsewhere and they'd be supporting a completely different set of institutions. <laughs> So unless we're going to hold states to some kind of universal sense of morality and try and transcend our particular locality and um, arbitrary uh, nationality, we end up with just bias and ignorance, which facilitates the worst war crimes um, You know that, that can be imagined. So it's a really sad, sad state of affairs. I mean, if we look at the Iraq War, the whole thing was premised on lies, and that's, it's not even controversial to say that now. I mean, that's pretty acknowledged by pretty much everyone across the spectrum. Um, you know, and I lived through that. Many lived through that. Many protested against it. But that wasn't a standout case. That's standard practice for taking a country to war. You lie and lie until people think, oh, well, maybe it's necessary. Maybe it's the right thing to do. And then years after it comes out, that's not the case. Um so these kind of fabrications, and I talk about it in the book, you know you can trace back through history numerous examples, numerous case studies.
1: cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. Hi,
2: I'm Debbie Skiri, and I'm from Wyndham. And my question tonight is really around where we started this conversation, which was really around the schools. Uh, the
5: uh, around s- the what? Schools. Oh. Uh,
2: and we've, I've heard a lot this evening about democratic principles, um, civic engagement, and I guess I'm wondering, uh, Justice Souter, if you could share with us your thoughts about what the appropriate role and probably responsibility as well of our schools to produce civically engaged students.
5: Well, I'll, I'll have to be careful of that one because I, I could talk even longer on that than on some of the other things <laughs> that I, I, I've talked on, but uh, I'll, I'll start with the bottom line. I don't believe there is there is any problem of, of, of American politics and American public life uh, which is more significant today uh, than the pervasive civic ignorance of the Constitution of the United States and the structure uh, of government. Uh, I hope every one of you runs for the legislature. Uh, The... I I, I won't spend a lot of time on statistics. We we know with pretty reliable evidence that two-thirds of the people in the United States do not know that we have three separate branches of government. Uh, I remember, and I I don't know the name of it, but I can remember hearing about a survey back four or five years ago in which a substantial percentage of Americans believed that the Supreme Court of the United States was a committee of the Congress. It didn't used to be this bad. Uh, When I was in school, we we had actually in the course of high school, there were two required civics courses. Uh, When we got out of high school, we may not have known a lot, uh, but we we at least had a basic understanding of the structure uh, of American government, the structure of state government for that matter. And what that gave us was not only a kind of a a framework to to hang the other thing, hang on the the, the things that we learned later. It gave us a a basic sense of where responsibility lies for given problems within the government. And a corollary of that was we we certainly understood where responsibility lay uh, in matters that with the business of the legislative branch of the, the Congress of the United States, uh, and we knew that we could influence that by voting. Uh, today, that st- I, I, I don't believe there would have been any two-thirds ignorance rule uh, back at that time. Starting about 1970, uh, the teaching of civics. Uh, went into decline from which it has never significantly recovered. The good news I know simply from from what I've learned in New Hampshire is there are a lot of terrific civics teachers uh, in New Hampshire uh, who are trying to turn that around. Uh, One of their problems is that they don't necessarily have the the material support to do it very well and the demands on teaching, and this includes the demands that are imposed by the no-child-left-behind rule, makes it very difficult to find the time for more civics. But the reason I, I, I said that I think it is the most significant problem that we've got uh, is that I think some of the aspects of current American government that, that people on both sides find frustrating are in part a, uh, a, a function uh, of the inability of people to understand how government can and should function. Uh, it is it is a product uh, of civic ignorance. What I worry about uh, is uh, is is a remark that Benjamin Franklin made, and uh, Susan Susan Leahy quoted Jefferson at the beginning about how uh, an an ignorant people can never remain a free people. Democracy cannot survive too much ignorance. Franklin, uh, in effect, had uh, had a comment to which the Jefferson comment is a kind of an answer or a response. And I, you probably have heard this, but it bears repeating. Uh, Franklin was asked by someone, I think, on the streets of Philadelphia shortly after the 1787 convention adjourned, what kind of government the Constitution would give us if it was adopted. And Franklin's famous answer was. Uh, a republic if you can keep it. You can't keep it in ignorance. I don't worry about our losing Republican government in the United States because I'm afraid of a foreign invasion. I don't worry about it because I think there is going to be a coup by the military, as has happened in some of the places. What I worry about is that when problems are not addressed, people will not know who is responsible. And when the problems get bad enough, as they might do, for example, with another serious terrorist attack, as they might do with another financial meltdown, some one person will come forward and say, give me total power and I will solve this problem. That is how the Roman Republic fell. Augustus became emperor not because he arrested the Roman Senate. He became emperor because he promised that he would solve problems that were not being solved. If we know who is responsible, I have enough faith in the American people uh, to demand performance from those responsible. If we don't know, We will stay away from the polls. We will not demand it. And the day will come when somebody will come forward and we and the government will in effect say, take the ball and run with it. Do what you have to do. Uh, That is the way democracy dies. And if something is not done to improve the level of civic knowledge, that is what you should worry about at night. So, to end where I began, uh, the the support of civic education in the United States, including in this state, uh, is, is a public problem and a public responsibility which is second to none.
6: And he could never win.
5: doesn't do issues, he does language around issues. He figures out what words will best sell an issue. And he polls them and he tests them and he focus groups them and he comes up issue by issue with how to talk about it and how not to talk about it.
7: If the language works, right, the language works. works. No, it's just amazing. Luntz has sold
8: his corporate and political clients the idea that a few carefully chosen words can make all the difference. But he's not just looking for any words. Lentz's quarry are those words that grab our guts and move us to act on an emotional level.
5: It's amazing that those two words,
7: constantly, everything that we do, come up at the top. So why do you think that companies don't use them enough? 80% of our life is emotion and only 20% is intellect. I am much more interested in how you feel than how you think. How you think is on the outside. How you feel is on the inside. So that's what I need to understand. You're going to use these to register whether you agree or disagree, whether you believe or disbelieve. The dials go from zero to 100.
9: To
8: get at his subject's gut feelings, Lentz has them register their moment-by-moment responses to a speech by a power company executive. Republicans are on the red line and Democrats on the green. Lentz is watching for both sides to meet in an emotional crescendo. Change fuels,
9: so there be a number of things that, that are available. Climbing, uh-huh. climbing, yeah, climbing, changing fuels.
7: Bingo, look, phasing out of older official plants. He's now up into the mid to upper seventies uh-huh. with that. You're replacing the bad with the good. It's almost like in with the good air, out with the bad. That might be an analogy that we might want to try instead of the automobile um- analogy. This is going to work. Watch. This will work. ...technology
2: hydroelectric power, wind energy, geothermal energy,
7: nuclear energy... Check it. I told you. The words work. The words apply to the policy. This is how we're going to sell it. Look at this. Hold it. Stop. Stop.
8: By the end of his session, Lentz thinks he's found the language his client can use to create a groundswell of public support.
7: And I'll be able to walk to this electricity company on Monday and be able to say to them, your policy makes sense, and here's the language to explain it. That was the Eureka moment when I watched people nod their heads. I watched them look to each other, and they were willing at this point to fight for this position.
8: But watching Lunt's work, I couldn't help wondering, do the words he's found help the public see the issue more clearly, or do they disguise it? Is Lance listening to us so his clients can give us what we want, or so we can figure out how to make us want what they have to sell?
7: You're ducking the question, you're ducking the reality test.
6: This is a guy who
5: is merchandising ideas, and merchandising a movement, and merchandising a political party. And in many instances, the words that he says are the ones that resonate, are ones that make, that obscure to some extent the issue.
10: The right name makes the policy sell better. Um, It's just like putting a name on a bar of soap or any other commercial product.
7: Um, It matters what you name things.
8: Journalist Nicholas Lemon wrote a profile of Luntz in the New Yorker magazine called The Word Lab. He described how Luntz once turned public opinion simply by replacing the name estate tax with the more emotionally charged death tax.
10: As far as I can tell, in the entire developed world, every single country had an estate tax, and it was completely uncontroversial all over the world. And it it is clearly the case that this construction, this rhetorical construction of calling it the death tax, took it from the realm of something everybody was for in in a just unquestioned way into something that most people seem to be against and is is on its way to being uh, eliminated. Look, for years,
7: political people and lawyers, who, by the way, are the worst communicators, used the phrase estate tax, and for years they couldn't eliminate it, but the public wouldn't support it because the word estate sounds wealthy. Someone like me comes around and realizes that it's not an estate tax, it's a death tax because you're taxed at death, and suddenly something that isn't uh, viable achieves the support of 75% of the American people. It's the same tax, but nobody really knows what an estate is. But they certainly know what it means to be taxed when you die. I'd argue that is a clarification. That's not an obfuscation.
8: Lawrence has admonished Republican politicians to talk about tax relief instead of tax cuts and to replace the war in Iraq with the war on terror. He once told his party to speak of climate change, not global
7: warming. What is the difference? It is climate change. Some people call it global warming, some people call it climate change. What is the difference? It It
8: apparently made enough difference to to Republicans that they began to use climate change almost exclusively.
5: Uh, It caused climate change. The president's global climate change initiative. Climate change research. And we must address the issue of global climate change. I don't argue
7: with you that words can sometimes be used to confuse
8: the axiom corporation of little rock arkansas is one of the biggest companies you've never heard of somewhere in these acres of blinking computers is carefully guarded data about you not just your name address and phone number but probably also the catalogs you get the cars you've bought and maybe even what shoes you wear and whether you like dogs or cats Axiom's information is culled from census data and tax records, those product surveys you answered, and customer records supplied by corporations and credit card companies that are Axiom clients. Axiom sifts all this data to produce lists of target consumers for their clients.
7: If you're a company, a bank, a retailer, what you would do is say you want left-handed people of a certain ethnic group, and they're going to be able to do a list for you. You can get marketing lists of Hispanics who make between twenty dollars and $40,000 who are U.S. citizens. You can get marketing lists of people who suffer from incontinence and have bought those kinds of products uh, in the pharmacy. You can get all sorts of things that can be very narrow.
8: Axiom divides all consumers into one of 70 different types they call life stage segments, encompassing everything from what hobbies you have to what
7: products you buy, where you live, to what you believe in. Instead of being Americans, we're sliced into 70 demographic groups. We might be sliced into hundreds of subcategories under that. And then the worry is that we don't share anything as a people.
5: The result is living in a society where uh, people, rather than having an idea of the common good, increasingly uh, uh, see their own personal well-being, or their own communities, uh, or ethnicities' well-being as the essential issue of democracy. If you
0: search for tenderness, it isn't hard to find,
5: you can have the love you need to live.
10: The distinctive danger of propaganda in a liberal democracy is that it goes unnoticed. It is hard to think of a better way to exhibit this distinctive danger than by reflection on the fact that philosophy professors in liberal democratic societies assume that there is a distinctive and easily identifiable class of words, the function of which is to decrease reasonableness, which have this effect wherever they occur in a sentence. My name is Jason Stanley. I'm the Jacob Urofsky Professor of Philosophy at Yale University.
6: Jason Stanley's most recent book is called How Propaganda Works. As I see it, the talk of post-truth suggests
10: that history goes in a progression and we are now entering a novel phase,
6: a post-truth phase. What are the markers that tell us that we're moving into that stage?
10: Well, I have some problem with the vocabulary of post-truth because I, I disagree with that description of what's occurring. So I think that what's happening is that we are slipping back into phases, namely authoritarian or monarchical phases. And uh, democracy, truth phases, are very infrequent in history. They're very infrequent in history, and they're very infrequent at any time in history across the globe. I think post-truth or pre-truth or non-truth societies are the norm. And truth societies, societies governed by respect for truth, are the exception.
6: What unnoticed bits of propaganda have you noticed the most?
10: The propaganda of liberal democracies is that there is no propaganda. (laughs) But I think that we've shifted into a distinct phase very recently with our recent election. I think that before our election, there's there's always been... Propaganda in liberal democracies, politicians take advantage of the fact that people believe there is no propaganda. But if they're caught, there's often punishment. Now, what's happened most recently in our most recent election is that when politicians were caught issuing falsehoods, there was no punishment whatsoever. In fact, they were almost rewarded for it. And the media has yet to catch up with that shift in the public culture.
6: Are there any other differences between what we might call totalitarian propaganda and the kind of propaganda that you're seeing now in the United States? I mean, you're saying that part of liberal democracy propaganda is that there's no propaganda. Are there any other differences, though?
10: Well, I think that we've shifted into an authoritarian propaganda moment in the United States in our previous elections. So I think that we've shifted into a phase where, although there's no evidence that the president-elect has an anti-democratic ideology. The strategy he has employed uh, to in his political campaign has been authoritarian in nature, uh, both the rallies and uh, the chanting at the rallies. I could go into more detail on that, as well as the redefining of
6: reality. I'm intrigued because you said that, that this is not a new phenomenon. This is something that that has historical roots. And indeed, goes back a long, long time. And I I want to go back a bit and and let's let's discuss the original messages that that were sent out from the church, as I understand it, about people telling untruths. And that was what propaganda was. It was it was in a sense something that was trying to uh, to force pagans to be more Christian.
10: Yes, of course, the church was uh, thought of itself as delivering the truth and the and propaganda the word comes from the catholic church and the idea was to instill to spread uh, to spread the doctrine uh, of the church so propaganda the term didn't doesn't didn't carry negative connotations until the 20th century until authoritarian regimes such as uh, nazi germany uh, Soviet Union, the communist, the brutal communist dictatorships of the east of Eastern Europe, uh, and C- Cuba, North Korea. So, so propaganda acquired pejorative connotations then, and it acquired pejorative connotations in liberal democratic regimes after World War One. Uh, Walter Lippmann was the editor of the New Republic, and in during World War One, and used propaganda to get Americans very militarized and behind the World War I effort. And then after the war, Lippmann became extremely concerned about the power of propaganda, uh, the power of these falsehoods. And uh, though propaganda doesn't need to be false, um, but he became concerned about what he himself did, and then he wrote about its dangers. And propaganda in wartime always emerges. We saw that in the, it's no accident that this election season follows so closely upon a major war, the 2003 Iraq War, in which we had a large amount of bending of
6: reality for policy goals. How have things changed more recently? And that means, uh, I guess, in the, the the context of the Trump election. I mean, what is the relationship now between propaganda and not truth, but post-truth?
10: Well, now I think... I, so... I need to back up and explain a little bit about what a liberal democratic society is to to get at post-truth. I mean, a liberal democratic society is one that values liberty and equal respect, because if you value liberty, you value your fellow citizens' liberty. You want them all to have liberty. So you need to give them equal respect so they can tell you when their liberty is being impinged upon. And truth Is the way, is the guarantee for equal respect. Because if you value truth, then you have to listen to those with, if you want to give those with less power equal respect, then, you know, you have to listen to them. You have to make sure that your views about them aren't false. So, so you have, so truth is the sort of leveler between those with less power and those with more power that ensures that you're not impinging on the autonomy of those with less power so in an authoritarian society by contrast in a monarchy for instance uh and all of all human societies were mon- almost all human societies especially in the west were monarchies until recently so certainly in the west it, in western europe um so so in monarchies the principle the main principle is not truth but the main principle is, is power. And what you're doing when you're in an authoritarian society, in authoritarian society, people learn to respect power. And so in an authoritarian society, an authoritarian leader will demonstrate their power by defining reality. So they will be free, they will feel free to define reality so it accords with the ideology that they want you to have. They've got a monopoly on truth. They have a monopoly on truth. That's exactly right. And people don't punish them for saying false things because they've shifted their cultural norms to power. They admire power now. And when President-elect Trump speaks of the movement, I, I fear he's speaking of a movement of people who respect him as the one with a monopoly on truth, who who view power, and his power, and his exhibition of power, as what should be praised and exalted.
6: You're listening to Ideas on SiriusXM, CBC Radio 1, and CBC.ca slash Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy, with an episode we're calling The Truth About Post-Truth. The post-truth era in popular culture May well be the offspring of post-structuralist and postmodern thinking within the academy. If what we call the truth is ultimately a function of perspective, then what prevails is just the product of power. As Friedrich Nietzsche once said, a mobile army of metaphors, illusions about which one has forgotten that this is what they are. My truth, your truth, do-it-yourself truth, some believe we're in danger of pulling the epistemological rug out from under our own feet. Others believe we've already done that. I want to get a, a clearer understanding though, of, of what's different about now. And, and, and I guess, you know, I, I, the question is, you say propaganda has been around for a long time and and I certainly buy into that as a suggestion, but, but, um, I'm wondering if propaganda, because it's been around a long time, isn't very, very unique or different. That you know, every every argument that anyone has ever made, even in a, our current situation, can be called propaganda.
10: I think when you keep on referring to our current situation, I'm reminded of the strong difference between Canadian political culture and current U.S. political culture. Okay, uh, the uh, the I think it's very important to distinguish propaganda from cherry picking facts. For example, or giving an argument from a perspective, because then every argument is propaganda right so so I criticize the the classical definition of propaganda as biased arguments because every time you give an argument, you're highlighting certain facts over others, but that's different from giving an argument that has premises that are false i may I may say, look, this population. Commits lots of crimes. And then you look and you see that statistically that population does commit lots of crimes. And that, and I may use that in an argument to that, that we should have harsher punitive measures against them. But then you could respond by making a true claim that the population is extremely poor and has mo- many less resources than other citizens. And this is an explanation of why they commit crimes and therefore a punitive response is not required. We should rather make make up the inequalities. So that's an argument in a liberal democratic society where one party gives an argument for punitive measures with a true premise and the other person responds by saying, sure, your premise is true, but you've left some crucial facts out. So there you've got Respect for facts. You've got biased arguments, but all arguments are given from a perspective because we don't have infinite time. <laughs> we can't consider every possibility. We can't consider everything because we only live a certain number—eighty years if we're lucky. So we need to back off a definition of propaganda that that is characterized in terms of bias or or or, or such like. Um. So I give a narrower definition of propaganda. So I I characterize one kind of propaganda as the use of political ideals against themselves. And the other kind of propaganda I characterize is the kind you find in authoritarian societies where you try to overwhelm the use of rationality and reason with emotions detached from ideas. So you try to heighten fear. You try to heighten anger and to such a degree where people can't evaluate arguments anymore they're just overwhelmed
6: i wonder what we're supposed to do though in that kind of context i mean if we can't use truth or we can't use reason rationality as as the litmus paper uh, by which we test all of these things what what are we left with do we shout louder than the people we're trying to defeat and and thereby establish our point of view
10: I, I do not think so. I think we doubled down on liberal democratic norms, and I think you see the president, President Obama, doing that. He's stepping down. He's not challenging anything. He's he's has respect for the president elect, uh, and the president elect has shown some respect for President Obama. So, so I think it's it's very important to adhere to liberal democratic norms. We must remember that liberal democracy is a system that was considered impossible. For thousands of years. And it could be that liberal democracy had, ha, has had its moment and the liberal democratic order is collapsing and we are joining the 90% of the world that lives under authoritarianism. Uh, Athenian democracy only lasted for a few hundred years. But I think we cannot shout louder. We must, ex- we must simply double down on liberal democratic norms. We must. We must demand truth that our politicians speak the truth. We must denounce them when they issue falsehoods. Uh, but we must not we must not engage in the propaganda uh, that in the kind of fear mongering and scaremongering uh and hate mongering that confronts those of us uh, who are deeply wedded to freedom. If you going to lead my country
2: If
8: you're going to say it's free I'm going to need
7: a little honesty
1: at a time like this, it's more important than ever to keep our independent media well-funded. Of course, not everyone can afford to chip in, so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you're in a position to stand up when you know others can't. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default method, but I know a lot of people prefer not to use them, so I have an alternative available for you to use, and you can find all the details to that on the same Contribute page. If you sign up to donate $6 a month or more, that's less than a dollar an episode, you get access to a members-only podcast, including commercial-free versions of the show, as well as occasional bonus episodes I make in which I tell some stories and mull over some big ideas. So again, if you have the means to support independent media, I hope you'll begin to contribute to whatever sources you get the most value out of, and you can support this show by going to the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will.
7: Just a few honest
8: It shouldn't be that hard. Just a few honest words is all I need.
0: Hysteria is more entertaining than facts. I mean, if the 24-hour news cycle just read to us, fact, 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 nobody would watch it. It went from reporting news to commentary because hysteria is entertaining. The mere fact that Fox News is often dispensed uh, through extremely beautiful blonde women or sneering, condescending men with a tone of anger that can make D and F grade students feel superior to the A and B students that they always were looked down on when they were kids when their politicians tell them lies that they want to hear and their favorite fake news channel tells them lies that they want to hear and then on Sundays they go to a church where they are told lies that they want to hear, then you can end up with a majority of the public that is wholly uninformed who can be manipulated through fear and propaganda and where people are terrified of Muslim extremists When Muslim extremists most years will kill seven, eight, or nine people, do you know we have more than 30,000 Americans dying every year of heroin overdoses? Do you know that Prescription pain relievers are the gateway to heroin, and we're doing almost nothing to limit the distribution of the Oxycontins and the other drugs that simply addict a patient and then make them turn to heroin. I did a funeral just a week ago for a 40-year-old woman that went straight down that path from, from pain reliever addiction to heroin, and it's almost not mentioned in the news. Heroin poses more than a hundred times as much threat to the safety and life of Americans as Al-Qaeda and ISIS combined. And yet what do we talk about? Evil is always other rather than evil being next door to you where someone you love and care about is in the process of killing themselves with heroin. Now our wisdom lesson today is a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. who 50 years ago was bemoaning the fact that our education system was failing on two fronts. The first being that it was failing to teach people how to think critically. And if that was true 50 years ago, it's much more true now. Really a huge problem to be able to sift through all the media and, and religious teaching and political input that we receive and to be able to tell what is true and what is fake news. One of the goals of becoming educated is not just to get a better job or to make more money, but to be able to think and to think clearly and critically. The other failure of education, King says, is that even when we do teach scientific and objective facts, We are failing to teach character. That is, some of the worst monsters of history were very intelligent, very educated people who used their intellect, their availability to information to do horrible things. It is not enough to simply teach people to think critically if we do not also teach them to love the truth, to prefer truth over falsehood. In a time when so many of us are exposed to hundreds of hundreds of messages every day through social media, how can you tell what is true and what is false? And I'm going to tell you, I'm guilty. If I agree with it, it looks true. If I don't agree with it, it looks false. And I got to tell you, that's not a good filter. Some of the most important truths for us to learn are the ones we don't agree with. But most of our fact-checking comes right out of our own gut. If it makes me feel good, then I'll repost it. I like it. It makes sense to me. It agrees with with my uh, predispositions. When we do that, we have to face the fact that there's a character issue at stake. When presented with evidence that challenges our beliefs, a person of character will feel cognitive dissonance. It, it will be upsetting to be told something that you didn't know was true. Recently, at work at Harmony House, uh, I was told that bleach only works to sterilize things in cool water, that if you put it in really hot water, bleach stops doing what it's supposed to do. I didn't know that. Some of you are shaking your heads like you've known that. for. Nobody told me. <laughs> and, and now I discover this is true. Now, because I'm interested in using bleach to sterilize things, I accept that I need to use it in cool or tepid water and not put it in hot water. But if I were being dogmatic, if I were a fundamentalist, I would say, no, my mother used it in very hot water and my mother couldn't possibly have been wrong and I'm going to keep using it in hot water. But, but, but if you, if you strive to be a person of character, when you are presented with evidence that contradicts your previously held position, you should immediately feel some cognitive dissonance. doesn't mean you change on a dime all the time. People don't change much, and they don't change easily. But you should at least feel the dissonance that makes you want to investigate, to look at it again, to to love the truth more than you love your own prejudices. There were always Americans around who knew that it was wrong to kill the Indians. There were always Americans around who wrote, preached, spoke about the fact that it was wrong to capture Africans and enslave them. There were always men in America who knew that it was wrong to deny women the right to vote. There are men and women in Congress and the Senate today who have repeatedly voted against gay rights, against equal pay for women, against universal health care, and have voted against a living wage, who continue to deny the validity of climate science, who know that what they are doing is wrong. They know it. They know the truth. They know the facts. But they do the wrong thing time after time after time, not out of a lack of information, not because they're not all PhD scientists, but because they lack character. Admittedly, some of them, particularly our congressmen, that may be an IQ issue there, but in a lot of cases, they know what they're doing is wrong, but they do the wrong thing over and over and over again. George Orwell said that in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. Now, you may not see yourselves as being a revolutionary, but in the face of the challenges that we have facing our country and the world today, at this juncture of history, I'm going to tell you pastorally, and I'm telling myself at the same time, we need to stop whining and get busy starting the revolution. If I, thank you. If I give you a minute, Mel, do you have an amen in you? Amen. Thank you. All right. It's a little aphasic after the stroke, but if you just don't go too fast, we'll get to it. If our nation starts registering Muslims then I'm going to join the, the local uh, Islamic prayer house, and I'm going to be registered as a Muslim. If Trump administration uh, just yesterday asked for the names of EPA employees who have attended climate change conferences, then I'm going to do everything I can to protect those people and to continue to insist in the face of climate science deniers that they need to put the truth above profits. Orwell said... That truth becomes treason in an empire of lies. The sobering reality I think we have to face is that we now live in an empire of lies. And that requires us to become people of character, people of conscience, who have the courage to repeatedly commit the treason of telling the truth, no matter what the consequences. Viva la revolution.
1: We just heard clips today starting with quirks and quarks from the CBC taking a look at some prophetic words written by Carl Sagan shortly before his death. This is Hell discussed why we need to question the information we receive. The PBS NewsHour highlighted some more disturbingly prophetic words, this time from retired Supreme Court Justice David Souter in 2012 on the dangers of civic ignorance. Frontline did a profile piece on the wordsmith of the Republican Party, Frank Luntz ideas from the CBC broke down the mechanics of how propaganda works, and Reverend Roger Ray, in one of his progressive faith sermons, urged us to love the truth. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
11: Hi Jay, this is Nathan from San Diego. I wanted to call in response to Alexander's message on the last program. He was talking about starting a new political party, and I thought, why start an entirely new political party when you can just join the Democratic Socialists of America? Sounded like his collectivist vision of a balanced view of left and right, but still with a focus on benevolence and and humanism, perfectly fits with the Democratic Socialists of America, which I recently joined. And it turns out, especially in San Diego, which is pretty much as far right as you can get in uh, California, they're going to be fielding candidates. And there's probably a branch of Democratic Socialists of America, or just the DSA, in his hometown. They would be happy to have more members. So just check out on Facebook, check out online. There must be somebody out there that can help him make his dreams come true of making the world better through politics. I also wanted to quickly point listeners to a really great tech talk that totally changed my way of thinking about um, what you were talking about with the young woman's email. There's this idea of tribal leadership. It was a nonfiction book about just how human groups tend to gather together it focuses on the idea of tribes which are groups of people over 150 or around 150 people and how the stages of development are based on the kind of relationships we make and the the whole materialism and thinking about yourself and and all of this individualism stuff is part of a stage 3 tribe where say you're a doctor or you're a lawyer. You think you're awesome. You just think you're great. And your relationships are all dyads, meaning you're like the center of a wheel and you like to control everybody. And then if you want to get higher, if you want to have a stronger tribe, it comes with making triads, introducing two people together and understanding the values that you share. and. Honestly, this fits into collectivism entirely. If you look at companies that do incredibly well, it's because they have these strong values and these kinds of relationships. Anyway, I'm probably not explaining it that well, but this tribal leadership TED Talk was based on a book, and it's totally fantastic and changed the way that I look the world. All right, Jay, I hope that wasn't too long. I don't mind if you cut it down, but... I love the work you do, so take care.
9: Hi, Jay. This is Brad Culling from Irving, Texas. Uh, I wanted to comment about your recent episode uh, about uh, the myth of individuality in the United States and. Uh, my point about that was it's interesting that uh, we we value or we seem to value this uh, concept of individuality so much, especially on the right-hand uh, side of the political spectrum, and yet at the same time, we exist in a society uh, that is built around corporations, and corporations do not wish for us to behave in an individualistic fashion. In fact, uh, it's the exact opposite. They would have us... Uh, Pool our efforts as a collective for the uh, enrichment of the corporation. Uh, and what's more, uh, they have uh, well defined policies and procedures as opposed to having us engaging in the individualistic thinking to resolve problems. Um, beyond, even, and above and beyond that, uh, let's take uh, another example of, of the corporate think being far different than what the, uh, the uh, conservatives would have us accept. Uh, for example uh, quality assurance is a perfect example of where the uh, corporation is heavily invested in regulation as opposed to having people being able to kind of wing it at their own personal responsibility the uh, idea of quality assurance is that if you put out a reliable product uh, that meets exacting specifications now corporations don't want to purchase products from people where they don't have very strict quality assurance in place. So for them to then turn around and say that they shouldn't be expected to adhere to strict regimens of uh, regulation just flies in the face of their own philosophy. So anyway, I thought that might be nice to to comment on. Keep up what you're doing, Jay. I really enjoy the show. Have a good day.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Today, I just want to tell you about an article I read. And I, th- I think it is good advice that we're going to need to keep in mind for a long time. It, it was an article on Vox titled, How to Combat Trump Fatigue Syndrome. And I thought of this today, I wanted to talk about it today, because today's episode is sort of one of my coping mechanisms for dealing with the news cycle that we're currently going through. So the, ar- the uh, author of the article describes... Trump fatigue syndrome, the the symptoms of it as finding yourself being numb to the stories that are coming out. Everything is so terrible and scandal-ridden all the time that it just sort of washes over you. Uh, burnout, pretty easy to understand. You get sort of overwhelmed and just sort of burn out. Losing touch with reality and grasping for normalcy, where you know we struggle to remember. The, the difference between what's a real, genuine scandal and just since we expect for literally everything that happens to be a scandal, uh, we'll see some things that are actually just sort of normal Republican stuff or normal executive branch stuff, and we shouldn't get too freaked out about it. But we think, oh my god, it's a scandal! Like and, you know, think think of the Republicans freaking out over Obama's czars, like something that. If I rem- remember correctly, maybe Nixon started the whole silly Czar concept and Republicans, because they hated Obama so much, freaked out thinking that he was a you know Russian operative uh, trying to install Czars. So don't fall for that. Uh, and grasping for normalcy is like if uh, if Trump ever does anything the least bit not insane, we then think like because we're so desperate for things to go back to some degree of normalcy that we think, oh, maybe because he was able to give one speech where he was reading a teleprompter and didn't like incite a country against us, maybe he's turned the corner and he'll be a normal sort of presidential type president now. And that's never going to be the case, so don't fall for that. Don't don't uh, get your hopes up only to have them crushed. And so the article gives some advice. All like pretty standard stuff, but like I said, things we need to be reminding ourselves of uh, now and for a long time. So the first is obvious. This is a long-term uh, fight. The cliche definitely applies. This is a marathon, not a sprint, so don't exhaust yourself. We all know that we need to be vigilant and good citizens and engaged, but if you are hyper-vigilant all the time, then you will inevitably burn out. There is no way around that. That's how that works. Don't follow every distraction story. So we've seen this pattern emerge enough that we should know how it works. There are real legitimate stories that come out that need a lot of focus and that we need to expose for the reality that they are. And then Trump like tweets something silly and we all go running in that direction and we forget about the major story. So don't run after the silly uh, tweets and silly you know, distraction stories. Focus on the stuff that matters because you have a finite amount of energy. Use that energy where it matters most. Consume your news intentionally. The author suggests checking your news on a schedule if you can, you know, rather than just every time there's a notification or whenever you get bored for 5 seconds you pull out a device to see what the latest news is that is leading you down the road to oversaturation and, and and burnout so you know he suggests that you know there are apps that you can actually use installed on your computer or devices that will block certain you know news sites or apps or twitter or facebook or you know something that can allow you to have a distraction free space to get your regular work or your regular life completed in, you know, turn off your notifications uh, is uh, certainly, that's something I did a year or so ago. Um, For a while I had my phone just in silent mode. And then I went full blown, do not disturb mode ever. So that Twitch to look to see like, Oh, I heard a ding or a buzz. Might as well check what it was. That went away. And so my instinct to pick up my phone on a regular basis went away. So now, in the rare instances when I think like I need to check something, the time or, you know, anything else, then I'll have, you know, a handful of notifications on my screen. And then, you know, I can look through them at that time. If if you want to take it a step further, as he was suggesting, you can schedule yourself, but he recognizes that takes an enormous amount of willpower. So, do what you can try to try to come up with a strategy that works for you and and you know and then something that I've I've said more than once recently take time off for self-care you can jump into the fight and out of the fight and live your own life and that doesn't make you a traitor to the movement you know you can't be on all the time every self-help book as this person writes and you know i've experienced the same myself every self help book says you have to take time off to recharge your batteries you know get get your energy back up so that you can actually be effective if you never stop working or never stop paying attention to the news then your effectiveness drops to nearly zero and so then you're hurting yourself and you're not helping anyway and so I said that today's episode is sort of one of my coping mechanisms, and I hope that it's helpful for you guys. I hope it's something that you're looking for and appreciative of, that you know this show is not your go-to up-to-date news source for the latest crazy thing. Because of the structure of the show by its nature, I have to take the longer view, and in a case like this, you know yes i can take the longer view and and you know each episode i could break down another topic of something going horribly horribly wrong but every once in a while i want to take an even bigger step back and you know get the not you know not just the 10,000 foot view the 100,000 foot view like let's let's take a look at the structures of how our society is functioning right now and uh, so propaganda was one of those things that that uh, you know it affects a lot of different aspects of politics and society, and it's a way of focusing very much on Trump and this new administration while kind of not focusing on them at all. And so we understand things better, but it's it's not um, the sort of frenetic focus on what the latest news beat is. So this honestly, I mean for me like this is my opportunity to step away from that deluge of news and and all of the stories affecting specific groups of people or uh, you know what what Trump is up to next. And so like this is sort of part of my self-care and I hope it is for you as well. The, you know, I, I can say, it's sort of ironic to say on a news show, you should maybe try to consume a little bit less news, but I recognize that it may be good for both of us, you and I, to, uh, to have these respites uh, for episodes like this. So if you you know, love that concept or hate it, you know, let me know either way. And one way or another, we're going to muddle our way through these next few years together. So keep those comments coming in. The number again, 202 That is going to be it for today. Thanks so much to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there.
8: How we get so trained? We can't see past our sad stories. And